Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Holland Christian Medium Talk. We were so blessed to have Ray Vanderlaan with us last week, Cam. Cam, you're in his second hour discipleship class. I am, second hour, and it has been an awesome experience. Definitely one of my favorite courses so far. Uh, Just the way that we've been able to dive into the text and understand it as a whole story, not just books and separate testaments, but to really see the historical background and the context of the people that that RVL understands so well because of the many trips he has taken out to Israel and the land of the Bible. Yeah, taken over 15,000 people. I mean, that just blows my mind. And, And what a gift it is to have him here at the school. Yeah, so enough of us talking about it. Let's move on to hearing some of what RVL has to say. Let's get to the episode. My grandpa called me one night and said, I think you should go to Israel. He was pretty insistent. Mm. Well, two days. Two days in Israel changed my whole world. And it really kindled a flame in me to say, this has real potential to get people to engage at an experiential level what it means to follow Jesus, not simply an intellectual understanding. And I knew at that moment that that's what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Ray Vanderlaan, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the podcast. Early morning. Yeah, early morning. (laughs) It's a privilege to be part of it. Well, hey, Ray, I... Of course, you're just one of my heroes, but also, <laughs> according to my figuring, I owe you big time. You've certainly raised the bar in my mind of what it means to teach Bible and the, the responsibility that goes along with that. Thank you. But also, I met my wife on a trip. <laughs> I remember. Really? Uh, yeah, Cam, I don't think I told you this. Back no. in 2009, I met my wife, Amanda, yeah. on a trip oh. with, with Ray. Wow. I believe you sat in the back of the class that year as a, as a Hope student, right? Yep, yep, I and did. And then there was an opening on the Israel trip, and you took it, and the rest is history. Yep. I, I remember it well. And it's not an exaggeration wow. to say that that year changed my life for more than one reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, Amanda, but then, uh, but then just sitting in the back of your class kind of flipped my world upside down when it comes to engaging the biblical text in the world of the Bible. So we're, and, I, and you know, I'm certainly not alone in that. I think there's a lot of people for whom you've made the scriptures come to life. I think it'd be really fun to hear, Ray, how did that happen in you? Did you mm-hmm. always have a excitement for the world of the Bible or did that happen along the way? Uh, yes and no. I, I, that's a really uh, good question. It, there's a long story, I think, connected to it. I grew up in a very religious home, and Bible stories were a significant part of that. Um, my mother was a teacher, an English teacher, and she loved story. So we often told the stories or heard the stories, and she was really good at creating a sense of context in her storytelling. She didn't wasn't a student of the Middle East at all, but somehow as a teacher, she understood the importance of context. But for me, most of my faith was in my head. Um, I went to Christian school, very active in church, uh, went to Christian college, and learned a lot. And, and it meant a lot to me. I believed it. I was committed to it. When I was a senior in seminary, my grandparents sold their farm had a bit of money that they were setting aside for retirement. And my grandpa called me one night and said, I think you should go to Israel. And my reaction was, that's craziness. Why, why would I want to go and visit all these churches and holy sites? I'd rather take another Bible course somewhere. But he was pretty insistent. Hmm. 
so there was an opportunity to go to Israel and study there for a semester. And he and grandma funded that. Well, two days, two days in Israel changed my whole world because they were, my teachers and fellow students there were seeing things and hearing things in scripture that I didn't see at all because I was not familiar with context with history, with geography, with culture, with the difference between Eastern and Western thinking. And I knew at that moment that that's what I wanted to spend the rest Mm. of my life doing, was to take that tool in the Bible study toolkit and help others to be able to use the tool of contextual studies. So since then, you've been to Israel a couple more times. <laughs> um, so how has exposure to Jewish engagement with Scripture challenged you and your Christian faith? Well, I think fundamentally there is a huge commitment to the Scripture in the Jewish world. Um, their focus, especially religious Jewish people, their focus on memorization on knowing the whole story and understanding the links from one part of the story to another, Hmm. um, really put me to shame when I went to Israel the first time. I had Hmm. no idea about all these connections. I had no idea that in the Eastern mind, you like to use a metaphor or a word picture or a story if you can, rather than a proposition, although they do that as well. So that total commitment to the text as the Word of God and as a single story was absolutely huge. The second thing I think that came came into my life more subtly, and that is that there's this strong emphasis in Judaism on it being one story and woven with like a tapestry with all these themes that run through the text. And for the first time in my life, I began to realize that that's what Jesus came to do. Um, hmm. That passage where Jesus is walking on Easter to Emmaus with the two disciples who don't recognize him, and they're uncertain about what all this means, the death of the one they thought might be Messiah, and so on. And it says Jesus explained to them who he was, who the Messiah was, and opened the Scripture And it just struck me so powerfully that Jesus used his Bible because he was part of that story. Climax, yes, the central um, foundation of it, of course, but he was part of that story. And that awareness of a single story, I think, was one of the biggest things that came through the Jewish world into my own understanding of Scripture. You touched on it a little bit, but how would you, in your own words, what would you describe or define the message of Jesus? You know, in in the Christian faith, we talk about gospel, believe on the Mm, Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and that's certainly the cornerstone of his message. I prefer to think his theme was bigger than that, and I think his theme was the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Kingdom in Judaism is where the king's will is done, not territory, but a situation where the king is obeyed. If the king is kinging, uh, I remember a rabbi saying, then the kingdom has come. Heaven is another way of saying God. So Jesus came to say, God wants to reclaim all of his Hmm. broken world. He wants his reign to extend over all things and all people. So Jesus came to die, to redeem, to create a partner that God would work with and through this human partnership of a community of faith who would then extend God's reign 
day by day, doing his will, empowered by his spirit, directed by his text, because they were a redeemed community. And so I like to think Jesus came preaching, and it's gospel, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think that's mm. the best way to capture his, his focus. And it's, an amazing, it's amazing that I remember even as a college student hearing some of those themes come out as I listened to you, and, and then going to the scriptures and realizing, yeah, he says, you know, in Matthew, kingdom of heaven and, and kingdom of God elsewhere, like just about every single story, mm -hmm. and, and yet it was a theme that I just had kind of skimmed past before. Yeah, the reign, of, the reign of God in a broken world is so central to Judaism and to him as well, as you've said. Um, it strikes me that in both Matthew and Luke, he sent out the disciples, and their mission was, go preach the kingdom of heaven. So that was their mission as well, make disciples, yes, but in making disciples, the theme message is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so take us from there. Your, your world has kind of expanded as a, a, this new exposure in, in the land. But from there, you began, at what point did you begin saying, hey, I actually want to take people here. I want to have people experience what I've experienced. I went to Israel as a senior in seminary, used the coursework that I did there to uh, complete some of my master's degree at seminary came back and took a teaching position in north, northern New Jersey at Eastern Christian. Fantastic place, very diverse, uh, a community of people really committed to reaching out to a broken world. And a lot of the student body and staff as well came from that broken world in the sense of where we lived and, and what went on around us. And so I began teaching this contextual emphasis of experiencing God, not simply knowing about him, but knowing him personally and, and extending his reign in every dimension of life, every square inch, as, as Abram Kuyper said. And in doing that, people became interested, and more and more people wanted to hear more, wanted Bible study. Well, I was at home um, preparing uh, the next day's lesson plan, and a phone rang back in the old days before cell phones. I, went to, I think it was the year Lincoln was shot or something. I don't know old I am. But anyway, and it was a travel agent. And she said, I have a group of people that are going to Israel. And the tour host was a pastor, the one that was kind of shepherding the group. And she said, he has a health problem and can't go. Would really? you be willing to go with the group? While I was in my first semester of teaching, it was during school. And I thought, there is no way. But... I thought, maybe, maybe God wants this. So I went to my principal at the time and explained to him the situation, and he thought, and he said, you know what? I think you should do this. I think this would be good for you. I think it would be good for them. I went to Israel with this group. It was a horrible trip, to be honest. <laughs> really? The guide wouldn't let me say a word because oh. I wasn't part of the official program. We went to all the touristy places. We spent an awful lot of time in gift shops. I should really look up those people and give them a rerun um, <laughs> because I didn't offer a whole lot. But two things struck me. When you, when you study in Israel, I think, you have kind of a negative opinion of a lot of tours because people are not there to really engage in any depth the disciple, the call to be a disciple that Jesus had. It's, it's much more just a tour. Mm. But... When this happened, and I, I was part of that group, two things struck me. One, where do you find a group of adult Christians who are passionately interested in the Bible for two weeks? That's kind of a cool thing. Mm. 
And second, why couldn't you study in Israel as a tourist the way students study in Israel? Why couldn't we hike and climb and go to the original sites and do the kind of things that the Middle Eastern student would do in order to understand the story? So a year later, this was 1977, Esther and I, my wife and I, uh, put together our first group. It was a very small group, um, about 20, if my memory serves me correctly. And we did a tour. I did parts of it. The guide did parts of it. But we tried to do it differently. And it really kindled a flame in me to say, this has, this has real potential to get people to engage at an experiential level what it means to follow mm. Jesus, not simply an intellectual understanding. So we did that one in 77, and then from then on, we began to do it first. Um, I think we did every other year for a couple of years, and then we began to do every year. And then came the big change when I moved to Michigan and became part of Holland Christian, when all of a sudden it, it just absolutely went into orbit. Hmm. Is that around when the video series began, or, or that comes next? I came to Michigan in 1990. God led us here. It was a real shock to us. We were pretty well convinced, I think, that we would spend the rest of our lives in New Jersey. Mm. Our kids um, had been born on the East Coast for the most part and uh, were New Jersey kids. My son was graduating from high school, and we didn't think we'd ever leave. But God had this amazing set of events that made it clear that he wanted us here. So we came here. And at that time, Holland Christian was not big on taking students long distances away during school time. So I pretty well had felt that I wouldn't be able to be leading these trips, at least not during the school year. But I came here and told the principal at the time, Mr. Van Ark, I told him that I did have a trip planned with people signed up already and that I was going to have to do that one or I couldn't take this position. And he graciously agreed that that would be an exception and go ahead and do that trip. It was in 91, and a number of people, including a couple of people from the education committee, chose to go on that trip. And all of a sudden, this became something that Holland Christian was saying to me, we just want to encourage you hmm. to make this part of what you do here. Well, in that context, I got a phone call one day from a gentleman named Ed Prince. I didn't really know who he was at the time. I wasn't from this area. And he said, my wife would love to go to Israel, and it's her 60th birthday. I'd like to put together a trip to Israel for her. And he said, you put the trip together, I'll write the guest list. <laughs> so, okay, I did that. And then about two months before we left, he called me. And he said, we'd like to treat you to dinner at the Alpen Rose in Holland because we've got some folks in town who are going to be on that trip and they'd like to meet you. So I told Esther and we went to downtown Holland and walked into the Alpen Rose and Ed and Elsa Prince were sitting there along with Jim and Shirley Dobson hmm. and a few others. And all of a sudden, something struck me that this was bigger than just another trip to Israel, that this, this was <laughs> going to be a significant moment. They were plotting on you. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was really, I mean, I had used their material, we, Esther and I had, in raising our kids, so we had a lot of respect for their ministry, and just the thought of being able to share some of these things with mm. them was very exciting. I still had no idea where it was going to go. So we went to Israel. On the second day, we were having lunch, and Dr. Dobson, at lunch, said, we'd like to put what you're teaching on video. Would you be interested? And I'm thinking somebody holding a little 
you know, one of those big video cameras mm -hmm. with a VHS they used to use. He had much bigger things in mind, but I didn't know that. <laughs> he said, we'd like to put that together with Focus on the Family, and the Prince family would like to be uh, sponsors of that. And all of a sudden, this began, and that was in 1993, we filmed in the fall of 1993 when those first videos uh, emerged and were produced and released. All of a sudden, these trips went from me calling people saying, wouldn't you like to go to Israel? We need five more <laughs> to get our price point to waiting lists of people who couldn't wait to go. And it just absolutely transformed what I was doing from its focus here at Holland Christian to a worldwide audience. Mm. Since then, Ray... Approximately 15,000 people have gone with you to Israel. Do you ever look back with any surprise or shock as to what God was up to? You know, when, when it started, um, our prayer, Esther's prayer, my prayer, was that God would keep reminding us that this wasn't us, it was him. And that's really been the case. Um, it's been amazing how God has used this and how many people are interested and people whose lives have been affected. But I've known since the beginning that there was a whole bunch of pieces to this puzzle, and you take any one of those pieces away and the puzzle doesn't happen. Hmm. Uh, the focus on the family piece, the generous Prince Family Foundation and their passion for reaching others for Jesus— um, the original director who took somebody, me, who had never been in front of a camera, never spoken in, in any way, being recorded, um, to an organization that marketed this. To But at the heart of it all is the power of the Word of God. When you turn the power of the Word of God loose, what does Isaiah say? It shall never return to me empty, but always accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. So my commitment from the beginning was simply this, to be the best Bible teacher God equipped me to be and to make Scripture the center of everything I taught. And he's taken that, and so am I surprised? It's all shocking. I, I once in a while drive by where I grew up over in Dutton, Michigan, and see what's left of the family farm there and think to myself when I was a kid, um, working, living on that farm, my idea of what I wanted to do in life was just to be a farmer. And somehow God had this incredible plan of how he was going to take the teaching of this high school Bible teacher and make that a piece of this greater story around the world. So it shocks me every single, every single thing that happens. Now a lot of it is emerging in other languages and Yes, I saw the Mandarin mm. Chinese version not too <laughs> yeah, long ago. Yeah, he, uh, he came in one morning. He was very excited. He was like, Cam, we have to listen to this. I don't care if I don't understand the language. I just want to see RVL speak a different language. <laughs> yeah, they did such a nice job. It looks like you're speaking Mandarin. I didn't know if you learned it's it quick crazy. or what. <laughs> There's a Spanish version, too, that's, that's done extremely well. And I look at it, and it's not my voice, so I know it isn't me, but it feels like... I'm speaking a language that I don't know, <laughs> and it, it is really funny. But when God gets a hold of something, whether it's five young men who became his disciples from a little country village called Bethsaida, and they transform the whole world by the power of the Holy Spirit, or it's just ordinary people in the 21st century, if you do what God's called you to do, and you do it faithfully, and you make the Word of God central, God's Spirit can take ordinary things and change the world. Amen. 
Uh, and that honestly, that's my big passion is to sit with folks like Cam here who come into class and convince these 18-year-olds that if they throw their stone, like David did, the best they can, and they do it to extend the kingdom of God and his reign, God's spirit will use what you've done in life to have eternal impact. Mm. And I just think that's really cool how God uses ordinary people. Amen. And you know, just thinking back, even the small window of four years at college, some of your impact, I even just look at the, the relationships I had with some dear friends and how being exposed to, to the scriptures really through, through you as you know, the servant of the, of the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, even just the way I think our college years would have probably unfolded differently if it mm. hadn't been for that, that influence and that impact. So, man. I, uh, I love how you say that you'd like to be even a period or maybe a sentence in God's story. I love that image, and hmm. I, I think that's so cool that like we can be in God's Amen. story. Yes. And it's that's so awesome. possible, even if it's just little like a punctuation mark, we are part of God's story, and it's Amen. an ongoing story. Amen. Hmm. That's awesome. So much what you do, Ray, revolves around the world of the Bible, history, culture, mm-hmm. context. Do you ever encounter someone who says, do you really need all that history or cultural context to make sense of the Bible? And if so, how do you respond? Yeah, I, I think so. I haven't had a lot of serious pushback because having come to um, understand the contextual, Im- the importance of context, in the Jewish world, context is really important, but the scripture is always the center. Mm. So I've tried really hard to let people know that the context is one of the tools in our toolkit of understanding those words. The context doesn't make the meaning uh, relative to a given situation. The context is simply another way to look at Scripture. For example, um, I had someone ask me that very question, do we really need this cultural background? And I said, I put up a slide on my PowerPoint at that particular seminar I was teaching of Genesis 1 in Hebrew, and I just asked the gentleman if he could read that, and he said no. I don't know Hebrew. And I said, well, God put Scripture, the Old Testament at least, in Hebrew, learning Hebrew, learning to translate Hebrew into English, knowing enough about English to make that translation, is cultural study. Hmm. So somebody was trained in cultural study, otherwise all our Bibles would still be Hebrew or Greek with a little Aramaic thrown in, and we wouldn't even be able to read them. So cultural study is necessary, even if all you have is an English or Spanish or whatever it is translation of the Bible, because somebody's cultural study got that book into your language. So what I try and emphasize is we've got a whole toolkit, but the toolkit helps us to work on the raw material, which is Scripture. And that is inspired, in my opinion, infallible. It always speaks truth if understood properly. And so if I can use history and culture and geography to gain additional understanding, I, I think it just makes the Scripture that much more powerful. Hmm. I love that, 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 that the history and culture and context isn't the point, but that helps the point yes. come to light. Exactly. Um, well, I'm like sitting in class. We have a pretty big class of 69, I think. So I, I don't get much one-on-one time with you here. So I'm going to throw it out. What are some <laughs> questions that you have had about the Bible? Because I mean, I'm as I sit through class, I have a lot of questions for you, which mm-hmm. maybe I'll be able to ask at some point. But I'd love to hear what are some things that you wonder about the Bible. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good question. It's my opinion at now my age. When I was younger, I sometimes felt like my questions led me to wonder if my faith was strong enough. Mm. I don't feel that way anymore. I trust God. I trust the Scripture. So I'm comfortable, like Moses apparently was comfortable, or Abraham, even to question God, not question him rebelliously, but to question him because it just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, a couple of the ordinary, the normal questions people have of Scripture have, have really um, been a struggle in my life. One is, if you move through the history of that story from the oldest parts of it we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament to the newest parts, the Christian text, it seems like God's way of dealing with people changes slowly but radically over time. And I'm simply referring to the fact of God's commanding whole cities to be slaughtered and having people stoned for offenses that we might think aren't all that serious, and then getting to the Christian text where Jesus talks about loving your enemy. Mm. What happened? Um, and and yeah. I've moved a bit in the direction of thinking that God is dealing with people at their moment in culture and helping them to mature and come to a greater understanding. So, for example, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, he does not forbid multiple marriages, polygamy. Yes, one, he said a man will leave and marry his wife, which is his initial plan, but he doesn't say don't have multiple wives. He slowly trains them so by the time you get to the Christian text, now it becomes increasingly clear to the Jewish people and then to the Christians that emerged out of Judaism that God intends one man and one wife, one husband, one wife. And I think God dealt with people like that. So in the Hebrew Bible, where the strength of someone's God was judged by the superiority of that God's culture or people. So if Israel was superior in some way, whether militarily or economically, their God was thought to be superior. And it seems that God works within that framework but slowly moves to bring the people out of that to the point where he shows that the greatest power in the universe is not his power to kill or destroy, but his power to die for those hmm. who didn't deserve it. Hmm. And But anyway, that's, Cam, that, that's one of the questions I've really yeah. struggled with a lot. And then, of course, there are passages in the Bible which seem to contradict one another. And one of the things that has helped me there is where uh, Jesus talks about what's the greatest commandment. Mm -hmm. In the Jewish world, when there are two commandments that seem to command something that conflict with each other, for example, the obvious one, don't work on the Sabbath day, but love your neighbor as yourself. So what if your neighbor is sick? Can you heal your neighbor on the Sabbath day? The Jew would say, which is the greater commandment? Love your neighbor or Sabbath? And it seems to me Jesus' conclusion was the greater commandment is to love your neighbor so you can heal on the Sabbath day. Um, that has helped me wrestle through some of those issues of what do you do when there's one commandment says one thing and another commandment says something that seems to be impossible to do both at the same time. And, you know, I just love how, especially I teach the Gospels as well to juniors, and I just, I love Jesus's concern for the heart of God in Torah and mm. and just even thinking about healing on Sabbath. I've begun to see that I don't think this is a disregard of Sabbath. I think this is a love and passion for Sabbath. And one of the things Sabbath does is restore. So, mm -hmm. of course, I'd heal on Sabbath. That's what this is about, to, mm -hmm. to bring back Amen. life. and. 
And in doing Amen. so, it's not a disregarding of it, but it's a it's he loves Sabbath more <laughs> than mm-hmm. than his contemporaries. Amen. What would you say to a to a young person, Ray, who who we're so busy? I mean, so much clutter and so many tabs open in our lives when it comes to Sabbath. Well, I think and I've shared this with Cam's class too earlier in the year as part of a devotional. There's a rhythm God built in the universe, and it's a rhythm of work do your work, and by work I don't mean just what you get paid for, I mean the obligations God gives you, uh, the opportunities God gives you six days, and rest, be refreshed and renewed and and refilled on Sabbath. And to disregard that is to get out of rhythm. Mm, So it's sort of like putting water in the gas tank of your car. You might get away with a little bit of it, but if you continually do that, eventually the car isn't going to work anymore. And I feel the same way about Sabbath. If we as human beings don't recognize that God intends us to be in this rhythm of his, I think we lessen our ability to fully live out our calling to use our gifts and opportunities to serve him. So my advice to them was, uh, just I shared an, I think I shared this anyway, an experience I had in seminary where uh, one of my Jewish friends suggested that if I studied on Sunday in the long term, I was going to have less effect, I would be less effective as a student. So at that point, I simply stopped studying Mm -hmm. on that day. And honestly, this sounds really crazy, but I found my study the rest of the time became more efficient and more effective. Mm. And whether that was the Spirit's blessing because I was honoring God's desire or, or and, simply that I was now back into the rhythm of what God intended, probably both, I found I was a more effective student when I didn't study on that weekend day than I was if I did. And yeah, I I just think that is really important for 21st century 18-year-olds in high school to recognize that if they want to be at their very best, they have to seek to be in the rhythm God created, Hmm. created us to be part of. And it sounds crazy. That might be one of the most, I think, powerful opportunities for young people to be rebellious in terms of cultural influence, what sometimes talked about the world in, in one sense, I think, in, in the scriptures, to, to rest, to stop, mm. because okay. that's just not a thing. It's no. a, because your value is bound with what you can produce. Right. And the electronic devices that we yeah. all carry and love so much make it even harder because it can keep you so engaged in everything else that we really don't detach at all from, what did you say, those tabs that were open yeah. in our lives. Yep, amen. Yeah. Hey, Ray, you've been doing Israel trips for years, and of course, these, you know, having gone on one of these trips, they're incredibly physically demanding. Even as a college kid, I remember thinking, wow, like, this is a lot. Time, a lot of time goes into this, all kinds of planning and preparation. And you've had a few health experiences along the way as well. Why, why do you keep going back? What is it for you that's worth it to take Cam and his classmates to Israel? Where's the drive for you? You know, you're a teacher as well, and you know the excitement when students become excited about what you love. Nowhere does that happen more profoundly than in Israel. I don't care who the group is, when you walk people back into that ancient world And you try and, the rabbis say, learn with your feet to experience it, not just to intellectually grasp it. And they're excited, and they're pumped, and they're having a great time, and their faith is challenged, and they want to know more, and they want to hike farther, 
and they want to hear more of the story, there's nothing sweeter <laughs> yeah, no to kidding. a teacher. I come home from Israel physically exhausted. Um, yeah, I'm 68 right now, and so it's not as easy as it used to be. But I come home spiritually and emotionally absolutely on a, on a, on a high mountain because every group I've taken, people are just intensely engaged in trying to understand better how they are this sentence or period or paragraph in God's story. Mm. And that never gets old. It never gets old. It doesn't get old in the classroom either, but it's more intense when you get to Israel than it is in a classroom. You're getting me very excited for Israel. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it, it, it is an incredible experience. And honestly, as a young teacher, I thought sometimes, wow, I, what I'm doing really impacts these people? That's not the case. It's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to be faithful. It's what God's Word does when you engage it two weeks straight in the locations where God originally um, inspired that Word. When you do that, I don't care who you are, it is intensely effective in changing our hearts and our minds. So I've, I've, my prayer always when I go to Israel is, okay, get these people to where they need to be and then get out of the way. Let God do his thing. You've led some people, some pretty well-known celebrities, Kathy Lee Gifford and others. What were those experiences like having celebrities on trips you lead? It's been a privilege to have had a number of people that we would refer to as celebrities. But let me tell you something generally about that. The people who've chosen to go, go to Israel with me that you might say are well-known, famous, or celebrities, whatever word you want to use, and there have been, they've been a, hand, you know, a significant group, number, um, they're just like everybody else. They're well-known, they've used their talents well, God has blessed them, but they are people who both need to know God more intimately and more personally, want to know God more intimately and personally, and when they experience him, as happens in Israel often, they're affected in those same ways. And it's amazing to me how they're just people whose journey is more well-known, but they're not any different than anyone else. Yeah. Having said that, um, it's usually pretty clear why they're celebrities. I've had some professional athletes, some professional musicians. Uh, you mentioned Kathy Lee and Frank Gifford as an example. Um, I have huge respect for Frank and Kathy Lee Gifford. Frank's passed on now, but um, she is not only articulate and an exciting person to, to be around, I haven't met very many people who are both more passionate about the Bible or know more Scripture by memory than Kathy Lee Gifford. She was amazing. I could not get over how deep her understanding of the text is, how much she wanted to be a text person in sharing that with people in the world she lived in, uh, she was living in at the time. And Frank, the same way. Um, this guy who was an incredible athlete, then a broadcaster. I don't think he missed a Monday night football game <laughs> as announcer for 29 years in a row or something like that. I forget the exact number. But he's a guy who really wanted to engage his God. And it's humbling to realize that, okay, they're famous, but they're not depending on their fame. They recognize the importance of, 
of God in their lives. And um, so it's been inspiring. That's awesome. Um, so I make sure to end all of our podcasts with a very special question. Uh, if you were able to go back and speak with your high school self, what is one thing you would tell yourself? Oh, that's a great question. That's why Cam gets the big bucks, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can think of two, two things for sure. It's one I should come back tomorrow after I ponder it, but two things for sure. I'll let two slide. <laughs> Not just one. One, don't underestimate mm. what God can and will do mm. if you simply throw your stone. I love that metaphor of David as a shepherd kid did what shepherds did, do all the time. He threw a stone, just an ordinary thing to do. So if you just do what God's gifted you and given you the opportunity, but you do it faithfully, what God can do by the power of his spirit with that is amazing. Sometimes it's well-known. The video series has gone out to a lot of people. Sometimes it's things that we won't know until we get to heaven and meet people that somehow God used something we said or did in their lives. Mm. And I underestimated that. I both trusted in myself too much thinking I'm the guy who has to make this work instead of realizing I just have to be faithful. And I underestimated how God uses these human partners, flawed though we are, to do his work. The other thing I think, I wanted to have my life all planned out. Yeah. I wanted to know where I was going to be four years from now and 12 years from now and 20 years from now. And I've come to the realization that the psalm that says, your word is a lamp to my feet, their lamps had the amount of light of a birthday cake candle. Hmm. So when you walked at night, all you could see is the next step. And I wish I had said to myself, don't be so caught up in where you want to be 10 years from now. Be caught up on what you want to be today and tomorrow. One of my favorite stories of Jesus, and you can't tell anybody this, <laughs> because it's a big deal in class when we get to it. Okay. But Jesus sends the disciples one afternoon to Bethsaida, which is about four miles east of where they were. They row all night, get into the middle of a storm. He walks out to them on the water, stops the storm. And then it says, and when they landed in Gennesaret, which is two miles in the opposite direction that he sent them, at the beginning, they had rowed all night toward a destination they thought was where they were supposed to go. And they ended up two miles in the opposite direction because that's where God wanted them. So I will say to students, when we get to this part in class, I will say, just keep rowing. Give it everything you got in the direction you think he wants you to go. And you're going to discover most of you are going to end up in Gennesaret and not the Bethsaida you think you're mm. going to. Mm. And that would have helped me in my life be more concentrated on being faithful in the moment, yeah. not trying to figure out what do I need to do now in order to be here <laughs> 10 years from now. Not that planning is bad, but I just think we need to focus on what is my next step. And then when we don't end up where we thought we might or wanted to, we aren't as worried about it. Exactly. You know, mm. Yeah. Ah, oh, Ray Vanderland, your friendship continues to be a gift. We're just Thank blessed you. by your, your joining us here this morning. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray, I think of, there's a picture I saw of John the Baptist in which he's covering his face and pointing. Uh, I, don't, I don't even remember where it was, or maybe this is something you talk about too, but I, I think of you and your influence 
here and in my life personally, and I know in Cam's as well, somebody who is pointing to Jesus, even just in the mornings when I say good morning and you say, show him Jesus today, Bryant. I mean, that just constant pointing to someone else. I mean, what a legacy uh, you, you continue to lead here. We're just grateful. You honor me in a way I don't deserve, but I bless God that his spirit has empowered what I do to be a blessing to others. So it's an honor to be part of this. I was saying the other day, at the beginning of the semester, I was like, yes, discipleship. And then I saw her homework, and I was like, oh, that's a lot of work. I don't know. (laughs) And just yesterday, I came in, and I was like, Mr. Ross, discipleship has become my favorite course. So thank, thank you. you. Which hurts my feelings because thank I've had you. Cam for years. But yeah, I respect Bible. you. I think you're right. Bible 3 is okay as well. But. <laughs> well, thank you. And since you said that in a public way, stop and see me before class. We'll have to arrange some extra credit. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> uh, hey, thanks, Ray, Cam. Happy birthday. Go hey, Maroons. Thank you. Go Maroons. Amen. Amen.